You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 13. Uh, This is... uh, A passage of scripture that we read earlier in our service, Um, I'll be preaching from the first 17 verses in John chapter 13. Today we're continuing our series, which we've called Gospel Foundations, and believe it or not, this is actually our 10th sermon in this series. Uh, Our aim in taking you through this series called Gospel Foundations is to give all of us a picture of the kind of church that we want to increasingly become. If you remember some of the sermons that we've preached uh, through this this series, uh, you'll know that the kind of church we want to be is is, uh, uh, full of people who use their words to humbly build other people up. We want to be the kind of church that sings passionately to the glory of Christ. We want to be the kind of church that is earnestly seeking sanctification and holiness so that our lives would reflect the holiness of our God. We want to be the kind of church that generously gives to those who are in need, both around us and around the world. We, we want to be a church that is committed to sound doctrine as revealed in the inerrant word of the Lord. We want to be a church full of people who are boldly proclaiming the gospel as we seek to be filled with the Spirit uh, so that Christ would be exalted among all the nations. That's the kind of church we want to become. And the only way that we can become that kind of church is if we build the life of our church on the solid foundation of the gospel. Now, I am so grateful that uh, in many ways, the church we want to become is already the church that we are. Uh, so many of you excel in in embodying and practicing the values that we want to continue to to. to Uh, entrench and spread in the culture of our church. But if you are anything like me, you know that the habit of our sinful hearts is to forget what we uh, thought that we knew. We, we, We might engage in the practices, in the what of what we do, but we forget the why. And when we forget the why, it's only a matter of time before we also lose the what. And that's why we're going through this series. We, we want to remind ourselves of what we do and why we do it. We want to give you a fresh infusion of biblical truth to show uh, one another, to show us how our values and practices here at Sovereign Grace Church um, are rooted in the gospel. And to our newer friends to Sovereign Grace, those who are former members of Westside or Springdale, or those who have uh, been checking out our services recently, uh, we want to go through this series so that you know what we're all about. Um, we're not a complicated church. Uh, we're not trying to put on all the, the hottest, latest programs and fads. We're a very simple church. And uh, we want to go through this series to show you what we're about um, so that you uh, can, uh, if the Lord leads you, to join us uh, to, to practice these values and disciplines so that our church could continue to grow into being a healthy church. Well, today we're going to look at another value that we want to intentionally cultivate in our individual lives and in our corporate life uh, life together as a church. It's the value of servanthood. It's the value of servanthood. If you know anything about Christianity, uh, you know that servanthood is a central part of our faith. Jesus himself is called the suffering servant. Through his suffering on the cross, he was serving sinners by taking their sins upon himself. Uh, This role of servant is a role that Jesus willingly and voluntarily took upon himself as he emptied himself of his divine glory and took on the form of a servant. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 22, I am among you, as one who serves. I am among you as the one who serves. And then in Mark chapter 10, he says, for even the son of man, that is a title uh, that he used for himself, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
we serve a servant king. A, a king who doesn't just reign on his throne, but step down from that throne in order to serve us as the humblest of servants. And as servants of the servant king, Christians are called to imitate him in service. We are to serve others just as he has served us. But the question is, what, what does that look like? How, how do we put that into practice? What does it look like to live as servants of the servant king. Now we live in a culture where many people know what it is to be served, but not that many people know what it is to serve. Just think about the times that we use the word service in our common conversations, in our vernacular use of of English. We use the word when we're thinking about our cars that need service. We need to take them to a service call to be serviced. Or we we use the word when we're talking about customer service, uh, where we are engaging with our internet providers or our Zoom um, providers who are failing us. And we're like, hey, where's the customer service? Well, in in all, all these examples, in all these circumstances, we are the ones who are being served. Other people are serving us. And we like it that way because it makes us feel important. But, but Jesus, he, he came not to be served, but to serve. And he calls uh, his followers to do the same. Jesus came not to receive, but to give his life as a ransom for many. And those who are followers of Jesus ought to serve just like Jesus has served us. And unlike the world of, of customer service, Christians don't serve in order to get a five-star rating or in order to secure customer loyalty. We serve to please our servant king so that the world would know what he is like. And so today we're going to examine one of our Lord's most beautiful um, and striking acts of service in John 13, where Jesus literally strips down, dresses as a servant, and washes the feet of his disciples. And as we behold the servanthood of our Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that we're going to learn fundamental lessons about what it means for us to serve just like our servant king. I've been reading this book on on C.S. Lewis's classic work, Mere Christianity. Uh, It's part of this book series that is is actually books written about the lives of books. And uh, I came across this, this memorable quote in Mere Christianity. He says, Uh, The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. It's a provocative quotation, but it's true. Uh, You think about the Pharisees. The Pharisees who were as steeped in Bible learning and Bible study as anyone, and their their Bible reading was useless because they missed the person and work of Jesus, and they missed the opportunity to become like Jesus in his merciful, gracious attitude towards sinners. And so our goal as a church is to draw men into Christ, men and women, children, seniors, into Christ to make them all little Christ's. And we want to do that by becoming servants, people who, who humble ourselves to do even the most menial of tasks uh, that Christ would be revealed as the servant king. So today I'm not going to reread our sermon text because we've already looked at it earlier in our service. We'll work our way through it as we usually do um, as we uh, seek to understand it and then to apply it to our lives. So the title of this sermon is Servants of the Servant Servant King. Servants of the Servant King. We're going to have two points today. First, the Servant King. That's when we uh, try to understand the text, what it's saying to us about Jesus. And then second point, the Servants of the Servant King. And that's when we look at the application. How do we put the principles about servanthood into practice in our lives that we might imitate our Lord? So let's begin. First, the servant king. Verse one uh, sets the stage for our text today. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father. That's the context here. Jesus knows that he's about to die. 
Jesus knows that the cross is on his immediate horizon. Now, of course, Jesus has always known that. He's always known that he was on the way to the cross. Jesus came into the world to die for sinners. That's the purpose for his incarnation, the reason why he came into the world. But, but it's one thing to know that something horrible is going to happen to you. I mean, all of us know that we're going to die. And all of us know that likely it's, it's, it's going to be a little painful or maybe very painful. Uh, it's one thing to know that. It's another thing to know that, that that horrible thing is going to happen to you soon. That's what's going on with Jesus in John chapter 13. You know, Jesus had been threatened many times earlier on in his life by the Pharisees and the scribes who threatened to imprison him, who uh, tried to organize mobs of people who wanted to stone him to death. But Jesus was always able to say, my hour has not yet come. He knew that they couldn't lay a finger on him to harm him because it was not his father's will. His hour had not yet come. But that has changed here in John chapter 13. Jesus' hour has come. And Jesus knows that it's time for him to die. Now, uh, how did he respond to that, to that knowledge, to the knowledge of his imminent death? Well, a few verses earlier in John chapter 12, when Jesus first realizes that his hour had come, he says this in, in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. My soul is troubled. And then later in, in chapter 13, which we saw in verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit. Now, this, this word troubled, it doesn't just mean, um, you know, being in a state of discomfort. It, me it means inward turmoil. It means agitation. Your, your emotions are frothing under the surface, a, a quick running current of confusion and agitation. Th this is exactly what Jesus felt in John chapter 11 when he saw everyone weeping in front of the tomb of his friend, Lazarus. Lazarus had just died and, and his sisters, Mary and Martha, and his friends are surrounding the tomb and they are weeping. And Jesus was troubled. And it was that, that troubled spirit that led him in the shortest verse in uh, the Bible, John 11, verse 35, it says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. That, that's the kind of emotion that Jesus is feeling now in this hour when he knows that he's about to die. He knows the suffering that is coming his way. And a big part of that suffering a, a huge significant part of what would make this experience of dying so hard for Jesus, what, what made him troubled in his spirit, was knowing that, that one of his best friends was going to betray him. Verse 2 says that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, those who are familiar with the New Testament, you know, we know that Judas is the traitor, we get familiar with that, but let's remember who he was in that moment. Judas is one of the 12 apostles. He's one of the earliest followers of Jesus Christ. He, accompan he accompanied Jesus in his teaching and in his healing ministry from village to village, serving side by side as a co-laborer for the kingdom. They, they had slept on the same bare ground. They had walked and talked and laughed with one another. Judas was one of Jesus's closest friends. And now he was going to betray him. He was going to stab him in the back. He was going to sell him into the hands of the Pharisees for the measly sum of 30 silver coins. And the amazing thing is that Jesus, this, this wouldn't take Jesus by surprise. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Verse 11 says, for he knew who was to betray him. He knew who was to betray him. Jesus not only knows that he's about to be murdered as an innocent man, he knows that one of his best friends is going to be a party to the offense. And that is a terrible burden to bear. If it were you or I burdened with that terrible knowledge that one of our best friends would not only betray us by stealing something from us, or hurting us in some way, but they would betray us that would lead to our murder. I mean, how would we respond? We would respond with, with hatred. 
We would respond with, with cynicism. I mean, who can we trust if we can't even trust our best friends? But, but Jesus, he does not respond with hatred or cynicism or fear. He responds with love, with love. Verse 1 says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus is feeling troubled in his spirit. He is burdened with the, with the terrible knowledge of his best friend's imminent betrayal. And yet he responds with love. He would do that in, in chapters 14 to 16 by, by teaching his disciples, giving them one of the most significant blocks of teaching in any of the gospels about what it, how they're going to be able to persevere, how they're going to be able to love one another, how they are to receive his love for them once he departs. In chapter 17, he's going to love them by, by praying for them uh, in, in what is per- likely the longest prayer recorded of Jesus in any of the gospels in John chapter 17, what is known as the high priestly prayer. And he would do that in chapters 18 and 19 by uh, submitting himself to the arrest um, by the Pharisees and by the temple guards and going to the cross and dying on the cross. How is it possible for Jesus to love in these moments? Well, verse 3 tells us that it's because Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. And Jesus, he knew who he was. He knew his true identity. As, as humiliating as the cross would be and as difficult it would be to be betrayed by one of his closest friends, none of that would shake his identity because Jesus knew where he came from. He came from his father, who was also God himself, the the Lord Almighty reigning forever over all of creation. And he had given Jesus authority over all things. And now through his death, Jesus was returning to the father And that's why he's not bitter about what is about to happen to him. That's why he doesn't shrink back from the cross in fear. He knows that the cross was God's ordained means for him to return to him after accomplishing the purposes for which he was sent into the world. And so he makes up his mind to love his own to the end. And he begins this uh, by demonstrating his love here in John chapter 13. And he demonstrates his love by washing the feet of his disciples. And that that is a remarkable act of service, not only because of what Jesus did, but because of when he did it. This is Jesus's hour of greatest need. He's not passively looking upon his death, um, not being bothered by it. He is troubled and he is burdened by it. He is in desperate need, and yet his expectation isn't that his disciples would serve him. No, his willing gift is to humble himself to serve them. In these precious last moments of his life, it is the master who becomes the servant. And so he begins by dressing himself for the task. He he lays aside his outer garments uh, which means that he would have been naked except for a loincloth covered, covering his waist. Then he takes a towel and ties it around his waist, which would make him look more like a slave than their savior. Then he fills this basin of water and begins to wash the disciples' feet, wiping them dry with a towel that is wrapped around his waist. My friends, this was a humiliating act of service. I mean, you think about how uncomfortable it, uh, it is for us to touch someone else's feet. I mean, it's uncomfortable for, for me to touch my own feet, all right? Let alone someone else's feet. Our feet are kind of gross. Uh, you got dry skin down there. You got warts, perhaps. You got little hard spots of skin, and it's, it's not a pretty sight. But, and, and we're talking about uh, a, a, a society, a culture in which we live where we have clean feet, I mean, we're, we're taking baths and showers regularly. We're wearing running shoes. 
uh, we're walking on paved sidewalks. That was not the case for them back then. I mean, they're wearing sandals, so their feet are exposed. And the paths that they're walking on are made of mud and dirt. Paths that are shared with, with animals and littered with, with animal feces. And so you're, you're walking through these mud paths and your feet are exposed. And sometimes it looks like mud, but it isn't. Uh, and you're stepping in it. And you're not having regular baths and showers. I mean, you can imagine what that would do to your feet. I mean, for the parents who are, who are here today who have younger kids, uh, you know how disgusting it is to have a little bit of that on your hands. You know, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. Um, it was probably a year and a half ago when uh, I was giving Martin and Benjamin a bath. And uh, uh, I stepped aside briefly to uh, get them their pajamas. And when I returned, there were these three huge chunks of poop on the ground. And I was like, what, what happened? What, what could possibly happen in the 30 seconds that I was gone? When Martin, he spilled the beans. He said, well, Benjamin, he pooped in the bathtub and then he didn't like it. So he, he threw it out of the bathtub. And there it is lying there on the ground. And who had to pick it up? I mean, it was, it was me. And uh, it made me gag. Um, it was not pretty, uh, but that's something that we have to do, right? Parents of, of young kids, we, we got to pick up poop sometimes. And, uh, and it's, it's smelly. Uh, well, well, here, the, the poop isn't just on the ground. It's all over people's feet. And Jesus takes it upon himself to wash it off. You know, washing someone else's feet was so disgusting that historical records show that, that there were influential Jewish leaders who were advocating for laws that would prohibit Jewish slaves from washing the feet of their masters. They wanted it to be a role that was reserved for non-Jewish people, for Gentile slaves. Well, here, we, we don't just see a Jew washing the feet of other Jews. We, we see the Son of God himself rubbing his hands across their filthy feet and using his own waist towel to dry them. You know, the, the, the studies in all of the historical records do not show a single example of a superior washing the feet of one who is inferior. Not a single example. This is the one exception here in John chapter 13, where the creator washes the feet of his creature. Now, his disciples didn't miss the significance of this humble act. No doubt they were all uncomfortable, but it was only until uh, when Jesus reached Simon Peter um, that anyone dared to say something. We know Simon Peter as being the, the brash, outspoken member of the 12 apostles, and uh, this is no exception. He asks in verse 6, Lord, do, do you wash my feet? It's this statement of, of incredulity. He can't believe that this is going to happen. And, and even after Jesus tries to explain that, that this is all going to make sense in a few moments, there's a, there's a lesson here. Peter, in his characteristic cavalier attitude, replies, you shall never wash my feet. In Peter's eyes, it was simply unfathomable for his master to wash his feet, to serve his disciples in such a humiliating way. But Jesus gives him this gentle rebuke. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is saying, Peter, if you, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to have a relationship with me, if you want to say that you're my follower, you have to let me serve you. Now, in, in that moment, Jesus wasn't just talking about physical cleansing. He was talking about spiritual cleansing, we see that in the following verses. Peter, Peter says in verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He's trying to recover. He's saying, oh, well, if, if this is what it takes for me to have more of you, then, then wash more of my body parts. But, but Jesus doesn't offer to do that because this isn't ultimately about clean body parts. It's about having a soul made clean by the word of God. That's what Jesus is getting at in verse 10. He says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. Jesus is saying, Peter, you're already clean, not by the washing of water, but by the washing of the word. 
the word that Jesus had spoken about who he is and the word that he had spoken about what he had come to do. That, that word had already cleansed the souls of those who, who believed in him, who trusted in what he said. And that's what Jesus would say later in John chapter 15. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And so we understand that Jesus wasn't washing away their sins by washing their feet. He wasn't taking away their guilt. This doesn't have any sacramental value. Jesus was was only symbolizing the true spiritual cleansing that would ultimately be be secured on the cross for those who trust him. True cleansing comes not from water, but from the word. That's why Jesus says, and you are clean, but not every one of you. Now think about who Jesus is serving in this room. He's serving his 12 apostles. And at the time, the 12 included Judas. Judas is among those whom Jesus is serving. Jesus is among those whom Jesus is is washing their feet. And yet Judas, though he had clean feet, did not have a clean soul because he had not responded to the word of Christ with repentance and faith. His soul was still filthy with sin. And so the the feet washing didn't cleanse anyone from their sins, but it did give them a picture of the gospel. As Jesus washed their feet, imagine what's happening. His clean hands are taking their filth to make them clean as he becomes filthy. He, He takes, the clean one takes their filth to make them clean. And that is exactly what would happen on the cross. On the cross, Jesus would take the filth of our sin upon himself so that those who trust in him could be made clean, not just physically, but spiritually, and experience the cleansing of the soul. And so do you, do you need that cleansing today? Are, are you weighed down by, by the burden of your guilt? Are you, are you beholding the filth of your sin in your life? Well, if you are, then, then Jesus is saying, I, I stand ready to cleanse you, to, to cleanse not only your body, but your soul through the washing of my word. On the cross, Jesus has taken our filth upon himself so that sinners like you and, and me, we, we could be cleaned. We could be cleansed and washed white as snow. On the cross, Jesus died for sinners by, by, by paying the penalty for sinners so that we could be forgiven. The one who was clean became filthy so that the filthy could be made clean. Jesus promises that if you turn to him in repentance and faith, he will cleanse you. But you have to receive that cleansing by faith. You know, we might be tempted to respond like Peter and say, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Maybe because we're too proud to receive it. Or maybe because uh, we, 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 we think that we are sufficient to make ourselves clean. Or, or perhaps we're just too, too embarrassed to admit that we are sinners in need of someone else's cleansing. Well, well don't, don't respond like that. Because Jesus says, if he does not wash you, you will have no share with him. Receive his cleansing. Receive his love. Receive Christ himself. Now, after washing his disciples' feet, verse 12 says that he put on his outer garments. He put them back on. And he began to teach them about how this was meant to apply to their lives. And and this is going to lead us to our second point, the servants of the servant king. In verses 13 to 17, Jesus explains that this feet washing doesn't only have spiritual significance. It also has moral application. He says in verses 14 to 15, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Jesus is saying that that those who follow him ought to serve like him. They ought to live, as as C.S. Lewis put it, as little Christs, as representations of his character. And, And they do that by being willing to serve just as Christ has served them. Well, how do we do that? How do we become 
servants. And how do we as a church embody this value of servanthood increasingly so that the character, the beauty, the glory of Christ would be more fully expressed in our church? Well, I'm going to give you four principles, four principles that are going to help us cultivate servanthood in our individual lives and in our church. First, servanthood is for every Christian. Servanthood is for every Christian. Now, we all know, and we're thankful for these people, the people who we we say, oh, that's a real servant-hearted person. You know, someone who's always volunteering to to fill the needs. The the people who we know are going to volunteer for spring cleaning at the building. For those we know, if we ask them to do something, they're going to say, I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm happy to do it. There are people like, like Josh Mejia, people like Stephen Kaminar, uh, people like Laura Tuggy. We, we have servants in our church and we say they're servant-hearted. We love them. They're a blessing to us and to our church. But for the rest of us who may not be as servant-hearted as our dear friends, we might be tempted to think that, well, if we, if we don't have this gift, and by the way, service is referred to as a spiritual gift in Romans chapter 12. We say, well, if we don't have that gift, then, then, then we're exempt from doing the same thing. We, we, we're happy to leave service to those who are gifted with the spiritual gift of service. That, that, we're not exempt. None of us are exempt. Jesus doesn't say, wash one another's feet if you have the gift of service. He, 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 he says, Wash one another's feet, one another, all of you. If, you. if you follow me, you will serve like me. That the call to servanthood isn't the call of certain Christians. The call to servanthood is the call for every believer. Every single one of us should be finding ways to serve others. Because the more we grow in servanthood, the more we actually grow into the likeness of Jesus himself. We, we honor Jesus's command to do just as he has done for us by consistently, diligently, creatively finding ways to serve those who are around us. And, you know, we might think in this era of self-isolation where we're not seeing people, the opportunities to serve others are limited, but that's not the case at all. We, we can serve one another by, by calling one another and just talking to one another, giving each other company. We, we could offer to bring someone groceries and expecting that they might say, you shall never give me groceries. We say, well, I'm, I'm going to do it anyways because I want to bless you. I, w- I want to serve you in a way that, that imitates the Lord Jesus Christ. We, you could arrange a porch visit or a backyard visit with someone you know may be struggling with, with loneliness Someone who may be a single person who doesn't have family or, or the, you know, they're not married, so they're not living with their best friend. They're, they're lonely. You could, you could do it as, as some in our church have done, uh, serve others by creating personal protective equipment for our frontline workers. Uh, there's creative ways to do that. You don't have to have a 3D printer to do that. Uh, you, you, can, you can find creative ways to serve others. But none of that is going to happen if we don't take the time and we're not willing to put forth the effort to serve those around us. Now, we we live in a culture where we see needs, but we assume that meeting those needs is always someone else's responsibility. You know, when when we see garbage in our parks, we say, oh, the, the parks and recs people will take care of that. Or we read about seniors who are struggling with depression and loneliness and we say oh well the government will take care of that or we we hear about people who are struggling from isolation and loneliness and we assume oh their friends and family will take care of that and we do, we do the same things in the church we we see someone sitting by themselves not engaging with anyone not clearly not knowing anyone and we assume oh someone else will go and and meet with them we hear, we, we hear about someone who's struggling spiritually and we assume, oh, the pastors will take care of them. We, we learn about needs and we assume that someone else is going to meet those needs. Now, th- those assumptions may be true. But servanthood, listen, servanthood doesn't settle for making assumptions. 
Servanthood actively seeks to meet needs by taking responsibility for them. True servants delight to find and even create opportunities to bless others, to meet needs, to roll up one's sleeves to serve. The easy thing for us to do during this era of self-quarantine is to say that all the needs out there are someone else's responsibilities. But if we are to follow Jesus, if we are to imitate his example, if we are to live as, as servants, we are going to reach out and find those opportunities and see how we are gifted by God to meet them. That's the first principle. Servanthood is for every Christian. Second, servanthood comes out of love, not guilt. Servanthood comes out of love, not guilt. And I can say personally, this has been the most important lesson for me as I've studied this text and as as I've prepared this sermon. Some of you may be feeling guilty right now, guilty that you haven't been serving, guilty because you feel that you've been selfish, guilty that that you, you feel that you haven't been wisely stewarding your time. And as a result of that guilt, perhaps you're telling yourself right now, I'm going to change. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and serve people. I'm going to go call this person. I'm going to go reach out to this person. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go live as a servant. Now, if you do that, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Over the next few days, you're, you, some of you are going to forget about it. Others are going to actually put it into practice. And you're, gonna, you're actually going to serve people and it's going to be good. But once the guilt disappears. The serving is going to disappear as well. The only reason why you're serving is to get rid of the guilt because none of us like to feel guilty. None of us like that burden on our backs. We, we want to do what we can, whatever we can to get rid of the guilt. Guilt may be a powerful motivator, but it is powerless to bring about lasting change. Let me say that again. Guilt is a powerful motivator, but it's powerless to bring about lasting change. We don't just want to be people who serve. We want to be people who are servants because service is not just what we do. Service is what we want to become. We we want to become servants. Servanthood isn't so much a bunch of acts. It's it's more than that. It is an attitude rather than just a collection of acts. It's a way of looking at all of life, asking yourself and others how you can serve. And that applies to your home. It applies to your workplace. It applies to our church. It applies to your neighborhood. Servants are actively engaging to serve those who are around us. And when the needs aren't put in front of us, when people aren't asking us to serve, um, we're still finding opportunities to serve. And that's what Jesus did in John 13. That's what he modeled for us. The disciples didn't ask for their feet to be washed, but Jesus did it anyways because he wasn't acting out of guilt. He was acting out of love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he, he loved them to the end. Love is the only motivator that will last if we are to become servants. Guilt is a powerful motivator, but love is the only motivator that will last. And in the long run, love is going to do far more than guilt ever could. Because guilt only responds to needs. Love goes out and finds them. Love goes out and finds the needs and perseveres in meeting them. And so if you find yourself lacking in servanthood, that you, you, you say, that, that's not me, at least not right now, and I want to become more and more like a servant, then the remedy is to grow in love. Love for God and love for neighbor. It's not just to pull up your bootstraps. It's not just to go out and strengthen your, your willpower. Those are good things. Sometimes we need to discipline ourselves to do what is right, even when we don't feel like it. But, but the long-lasting remedy that we're looking for is to not only grow in service, but to grow in love that results in service. And the Bible teaches us how we grow in love. We grow in love by knowing the one who first loved us. The more we know the love of God, the more we show the same love to others. First John four nineteen says, we love because he first loved us. That's, that's a common 
kind of wedding verse. You know, we love one another because he first loved us. But the scope of that verse goes far beyond just the most intimate relationships in our lives. We, we love one another. We, we love our enemies. We, we love those who, who may not be putting their needs before us, but we want to go and reach out and find those needs. We love that way because that's how God has loved us in Christ. We love because he first loved us. Third principle, servanthood engages the most menial of tasks. Servanthood engages the most menial of tasks. You might be wondering, what does that word menial mean? I've used it a few times in this sermon. Well, menial means not requiring much skill and lacking prestige. It's, it's picking up your kid's poop on the ground uh, where it doesn't, you don't get recognition. It doesn't take much skill. You'd rather hire someone to do it for you. And uh, likely um, anyone would be able to do it. It's the kind of thing that you do that, that, that where you might lift up your nose and say, oh, that might be for someone else, but it's not for me. But Jesus is teaching us that, that those menial tasks are precisely the kinds of things that he wants us to do for others. He expects us to do what is menial because he did what is menial for us. Verse 16 says, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who, who sent him. If, if we are tempted to lift up our noses at the menial tasks that lie before us, we, we are to remember that Jesus, our master, humbled himself to do the most menial of tasks, and we are not greater than him. If he did it, then we must do it as well. D.A. Carson puts it this way in his commentary on the Gospel of John. No emissary has the right to think he is exempt from tasks cheerfully undertaken by the one who sent him. And no slave has the right to judge any menial task beneath him after his master has already performed it. Now, what does that look like? What kinds of menial tasks can we do in the name of Jesus to show those around us what Jesus is like? It may look different for different people, depending on the needs that are around you and the opportunities that you have. But, it, but a great way to start is to simply add this question to your vocabulary. As you meet people, uh, as, you, as you interact with the people in your home, it's simply to ask them, how can I serve you today? Or is there anything that I can do to help you? It's, it's, it's expressing a willingness to do whatever you can to serve the people who are around you. I remember... Um, uh, a few years ago, I met a pastor at a, uh, a Gospel Coalition Ontario conference. And when he learned that I was part of uh, Sovereign Grace, this family of churches around the world, he said, oh, I, I, I once saw uh, the founder of Sovereign Grace, C.J. Mahaney, uh, at, a, at a large conference. It was together for the gospel, thousands of people, and C.J. was one of the keynote speakers. But as, as this, this pastor friend is telling the story, he said, he said, I was sitting there and there was CJ. He was, he was getting ready to preach and he went up to the conference speaker and he said, he said is there anything that I can do to serve you? you? You need me to put out some chairs? I can do that. You want me to greet people or usher? I can do that. And, uh, and, and he was struck by how this, this well-known preacher this, this speaker at this large conference would say, hey, I, I'm, I want to serve those who are organizing this conference. I think in that moment, both he and I said to ourselves and to one another, we, we want to be like that. To not just assume that other people are here to serve us, but to, to, to have the mindset of saying, I, I want to serve others no matter where I am, no matter what position I'm given, no matter what honorable opportunities are before me. We can serve others by asking how we can serve them, even if it means engaging in menial tasks. And so husbands, husbands, you can, you can ask your wife, honey, how can, I, how can I help you today? Is there anything that I can do to, to serve you? Um, now, you need to be ready because that could mean vacuuming the house. It could mean washing the dishes. It could mean going through a season when you are cleaning all the, or you are changing all the dirty diapers, it, you got to get ready for some menial tasks. That's what our wives are doing, okay? We need to know that, 
that I have very little advice for the wives on this call because uh, you are already servant of servants. You are examples for us to follow. Well, husbands, we, we got to step it up and we got to say, honey, how can I serve you today? Anything you want me to do, I'm happy to do it. But let's learn to have that attitude as we serve one another in our homes. Children, if you're here today and you're, you're living with your parents, whether you are younger or whether you are older, you, you can ask your parents the same question. Mommy, is there anything I can do to help you? Or, or Daddy, can I, can I serve you? Or better yet, you can, you can think about what your parents already do and just go and do it. You know, this morning, my son, Ethan, who's seven years old, he woke up before anyone else. He came down, he set the table for breakfast. He realized that the table was still sticky from, the, from yesterday's dinner. He wiped the table and then he reset the table and then he, he kept his little baby brother busy so that mommy and daddy could sleep a few more minutes. I didn't ask him to do that. And I, I, I said to him, what a beautiful way of serving your family. Thank you for doing that. Now, he's not always like that, okay? <laughs> My kids are not, are not always looking to serve, and we need to train them. We need to, to, to lead them by example. We need to remind them that uh, that's how we want them to serve in our household. But, but children, you can do that too. You can, you can follow Jesus by serving like Jesus one more group of people I want to address, single people. If you're, if you're here today and you're not married, you're, you're still single, I know the temptation, okay, to use this time just for um, your own hobbies or for watching TV shows or, or streaming Netflix. You're just kind of waiting for normal life to begin. Well, I would challenge you, single people, who, by the way, if you think that you don't have much time now, you're, you're in for a rude surprise once you get married and once you have kids. Because then you, you realize that even 15 minutes is precious. Um, I would challenge you to think about ways that you could serve others. Not, not just people in your peer group. Though I, I encourage you to do that as well. To call up your friends. To visit them. To, to bring them food. To check up on people who uh, you may be wondering just how they're doing. Uh, serve your peer group, but, but, but go beyond that. Try to find ways to serve others, to serve the elderly, to, to serve parents of young children. I mean, we have more than enough uh, to do. We, we have a lot of things that we could ask you to help us with. Find ways to serve. There is so much that we can do, but we won't do any of it if our hearts aren't filled with love. Love is the only lasting motivator that is going to lead us into living like servants in our homes, in our church, in our communities. We, we need to grow in love. Finally and briefly, servanthood depends on our identity in Christ. Servanthood depends on our identity in Christ. We can humble ourselves to live as servants just like Jesus did, because we know where we come from and we know where we're going. We are going to the Father. And when we return to the Father, we will be welcomed as the very sons and daughters of God himself. And nothing will change that status. Not the menial tasks that we engaged in, not in the lowliness of our station here on earth. We will all be welcomed in Christ by God, by grace, and grace alone. And the more we recognize this, the more we root our identity, not in what we do, but in who we are in Christ, the more we will be freed to serve. Because we, we know that Christ has made a way for us to be eternally accepted before God. We will be free to serve as servants of the servant king, who himself humbled himself to wash our feet. And so today, if you're not sure about what you believe about God, uh, you're not sure about who Jesus is and whether he could have died for your sins, um, I want to encourage you to, to look to Jesus now. I mean, perhaps you've been hesitant to reach out to God because you've been afraid that you would find a cruel tyrant, a, a deity who capriciously leads for only his own benefit to the detriment of 
his creation. But, but here we see that Jesus isn't a cruel tyrant. Jesus is a humble servant. He's the king, yes, he does reign, but he is also willing to step down from that throne to serve us for our everlasting joy. Only Christ will serve you in your greatest need, your need for forgiveness, your need for salvation. So turn to Christ in repentance and faith and receive eternal life in him. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us serve one another as Christ has served us. Let's become the kinds of people who regularly ask how we can serve those who are around us. And let us not shrink back from doing what seems like it's beneath us. The tasks that are menial in nature, what may receive little to no recognition. Because I can assure you that even though the world doesn't see it, our servant king sees it all. We, We serve in his name. We serve for his sake so that he might be glorified in us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus who served as the lowliest of servants. And uh, that wasn't just something he did. It's something, um, it's, it's who he was. Um, humility is within the Godhead. As the three persons of the Trinity have delighted in serving one another um, from all eternity. And so we, we pray that, that the pride that keeps us from serving others or even from thinking about others would, would die away, that we would put it to death and that the humility of Christ himself would, would fill that spot in our hearts and increasingly come to characterize how we, how we live in, in our homes, uh, in our church, in our neighborhood. May we be known as servants, um, servants of the servant king. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.